0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hello, 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 and what is up, Team Twimmel? You are about to listen to episode 400 of the Twimmel AI podcast, and I am so happy to be sending it your way. Now. I'm not about to launch off into some long soliloquy about how momentous this occasion is and all that it represents. I do have a few quick things to say, though, if you don't mind. First off, and I've said this before, as much as we've accomplished with this show, what we're most proud of here at Twin Mill HQ is the community of listeners, learners and fans that is formed around the podcast and more so, the impact that we've been fortunate enough to make for you, however small or large that may be. You all have been so generous in sharing your stories with us over the years, and knowing the many ways that we've helped you advance your careers and communities is what keeps us going. Second, while 400 is an amazing milestone for us, what's more interesting to me is how we grow and evolve over the next 100 episodes to better serve all of you. We've already introduced a ton of new programs this year, from video interviews to watch parties to premium courses, and this is just the beginning. We really want to hear your feedback on this occasion. Please visit twimmelai.com/go/400400 and share your story on how the podcast has impacted you, your thoughts on how we can improve, and your tips on who we should interview. As a thank you for your contribution, we're printing up a fresh new batch of Twimmel laptop stickers and everyone who leaves a note will get some. Again, visit twimmelaicom go slash 400. Finally, in the spirit of celebrating our community, we are working on something very big that we'll be unveiling soon. Not much more to say at this time, but I am super pumped about it and I'm sure you will be too. Stay tuned, you'll know it when you see it. As always, thank you so much for listening, and now, on to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Johannes Eichstadt. Johannes is an assistant professor of psychology at Stanford University. Johannes, welcome to the Twin Wall AI podcast. Thank you,
1: pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think we learned about some of your research in the context of a presentation you did at the recent uh, forum that was held by the um, Human-Centered AI Institute at Stanford, um, and we're looking forward to digging into that. But before we do, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you came to work in uh, computational you know psychology computational social science
1: yeah yeah sure it's a it's a new field um, i was a physicist by training many years ago okay and at some point decided that i cared more about people than i did about particles and then <laughs> made a very long career transition through a phd in psychology uh, into the social sciences and um, about 10 years ago started out and started carving out an area that intersects big data, machine learning with computational questions in psychology and just straight up psychology questions. So, for example, can we predict the heart disease risk of areas using Twitter and do the psychological predictors that we pull out from the Twitter language correspond to what we know about heart disease? Can we better understand depression by looking at what language? that people use precedes the first diagnosis of depression in the medical records. So it's, it's, it's been really fun. I mean, I've been really enjoying it because of the physics background. I'm I'm more mathy perhaps than some other psychologists. And so I'm, I'm on the sort of computational psychology side, and then there are psychological computer scientists with which I interface. And then Hmm. together we have the critical expertise across domains to actually find new stuff. iterate on new solutions.
0: Interesting. Interesting. It does most of your work involve doing analysis of texts from a social media context and uh drawing conclusions from that?
1: It tends to be text. Yeah. It tends to be text and it tends to be social media. And generally all text data sets are for a game. So we've we've also used transcripts uh, of therapy interactions or speeches or autobiographical writing to writing prompts. But the beauty of social media data is that you're so highly powered because of the size of these data sets that you can really use sort of deeper machine learning methods. And you also have such high statistical power that for feature exploration, that for finding things like associated language patterns, you have the power to discover these unexpected associations. And you, you sort of, you need to be order in the in the thousands of people in these data sets and social media is the sort of easiest source of data for those kinds of analyses Um, and there are other advantages and disadvantages of using social media data i could talk about sure okay so (laughs) advantage is it's unobtrusive so you in compared to other psychological research you don't ask people to Get off their couch and fill out a survey, right? You don't knock on their door, and you also don't intrude into their mental processes with some question. In principle, right? In an ideal world, it's an, a kind of ecological assessment. It's people that are in digital spaces; they're behaving as they normally would, with their friends, with their with their own needs. With right, they're just being themselves, and you sort of, as they're sitting around their digital campfire, you sort of listen in at scale with their permission, of course. And so there's this notion that it's unobtrusive for some psychological processes can be can be quite nice. Um, One of the major disadvantages is that you have certain kinds of distortions in the social media signal. You have sampling biases; certain populations are just not as represented. But that's getting less and less, and it was never that big of a concern to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, for example, the median age in Twitter is five years different than the median age of the U.S. population, and you know, people always say, oh, "How you, how can you make a population estimate based on Twitter?" You know, I'm not on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but you're also not in a representative survey, the vast no. majority of the time, right? So when Gallup sure. pol- polls a thousand people to get a national estimate of how people feel about Trump or what their well being is, you're also not in that survey. Yeah, right. And so when we have five million users on Twitter and we can estimate the demographics and age, and we can post-stratify these samples to represent the population, we actually have much better power than your thousand person representative survey, right? And so to some extent, the sampling bias thing is sort of, I think we've tackled it now. We've you know, beaten the dead horse many times enough that, it, that I think people, <laughs> people are coming around. The, the other thing, or the other main concern is that, um, that are people, uh, social desirability bias that people are putting on a face
0: on social media. I was going to ask about that. You mentioned right. that an advantage is that you're observing people being themselves, but often, you know, people aren't being themselves. They're being their Twitter self.
1: They're being their Twitter self or, or their Facebook self, right? That's, right. yeah, sometimes those are different selves. Um, yeah, that's true. And so we've, we've tried to characterize that a little over the years. and And it seems like that what's really happening is not so much So uh, particularly on platforms like Facebook, your Facebook graph, the people you're connected with on Facebook are the people who know you. So there's a certain element of just keeping you within the bounds of who you are roughly as a person that Mm -hmm. would just otherwise just seem incongruent. Um, What we have seen, however, is that people tend to suppress statements when they're not feeling well uh, along two dimensions. The first dimension is sort of when they're sad or depressed And the other one is if they're, if they experience failures in life, which is part of the problem of these sort of comparative processes on social media for certain age groups in particular, Mm -hmm. that you're comparing your normal life to somebody else's highlight reel. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's certainly the case. So if you think about American culture more generally, I think there's two foundational myths that sort of guide American social norms. The one is a sort of positivity bias sort of pursuit of happiness style set of legends and myths and norms and archetypes. And then the, the second one is a Protestant work ethic piece, um, which is that it's good to be successful and that successful people are somehow morally righteous or morally mm-hmm. praiseworthy. Um, and I think that's part of the American obsession also with wealth, is that mm-hmm. wealth is a proxy for success, and success is a marker for so moral praiseworthiness. So mm-hmm. if you think about American culture along those two dimensions, the opposite of those dimensions ends up, those are costly social signals, right? so it's mm-hmm. it's costly for you to say that you're that you won't contribute to my happiness or that you won't contribute to my success. And that association with me, might be experienced as detrimental to you in these domains. And so there's these display norms, we call them display norms, that limit negative signal. So what it does, I think about it more in terms of compression of variance, and this might be a little technical, but the idea is it's not that people don't say negative things, it's just that they're less likely to say them and that you see less signal in that space. So you end up needing more statistical power to tease these effects in that domain apart fortunately though it seems to be that the social desirability biases roughly act on most people in a similar way so it it generally doesn't interact with the kinds of measurements we're trying to do it's not that there are certain personality types that do this more or less okay Um, you know and, and if you were trying to measure the personality type you would get caught up in that kind of systemic bias. So the way it works is it, it, it limits the sort of usefulness of social media, but it looks like it's always in a way that can be overcome with more data. And so right in these analyses, generally data is king anyway. It's the most important thing in these analysis is that you have large data sets. And I think it just means that for certain kinds of questions, you have to have even bigger data sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been something that's that was sort of doable uh, over the last years
0: mm-hmm and uh we've historically talked about you know twitter i think probably twitter as a social network as having its own language that you know isn't necessarily um you know the way you know folks would write uh in mm-hmm. another format my i guess my sense is that you know, going from 140 to 280 characters has loosened that up a little bit, but does that represent a challenge in applying the techniques that you're trying to apply?
1: Yeah, um, that's generally true across social media platforms. So there's always the question of what are you trying to do as a scientist? So with other social scientists, I'm using Twitter as a means to study people. I'm not studying Twitter. Like mm-hmm. I fundamentally don't care about Twitter. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a, there can be a trend, um, particularly, in computers, particularly in computer science, to do something I call Twitterology, which is where you end up studying the, the sort of intricacies and idiosyncrasies of Twitter as a platform. And it goes so far, right? Sometimes you read statements like, "Oh, we studied friendships on, we, sh- we studied friendships. We did it on Twitter. A friendship is two people following one another." And you're like, mm, not sure if that's a friendship. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a platform feature, right? It's a, like a Facebook like. It's something that makes sense in the context of the platform. Um, and certainly, uh, what we end up doing is we throw away a lot of Twitter specific signals. So, when we're trying to measure psychological states of populations, we now throw away retweets, we throw away replies, and we throw away link shares. And so we only we short set the data set to those um, shares that are sort of in principle autobiographical uh, with less of an information or Twitter specific dynamic component. And that really improves the, the signal to noise ratio and the kinds of variables we're trying to extract at the expense of limiting recall, limiting uh, the, the scope of the data set by about 80%. Those are the kinds of decisions you make If you're trying to walk away with a finding or a set of insights about human beings that you hope would translate to a different domain. Right. Right. And so what we've seen is that with these sort of safeguards in place, you can learn a language prediction model. So something that takes language as an input and outputs, say, estimates of psychological states or depression or something like that. You can learn that on Facebook and you can carry it over to Twitter. And it works mm. and you, you can learn something on Twitter and use it to transcriptions of people's speeches and it works. So the beautiful thing about language m- much over and above fa- things like Facebook likes is that they're, they're approved. Language is a proven technology, right? Language is designed to be universal <laughs> and the the vast majority of language, sort of the ocean of language is shared between domains um, and then depending on what kind of medium you have, you you have sort of added components to that sort of basic stratum of language. So on Facebook, for example, you have lots of memes, I guess on Twitter as well, which are sort of like waves on that ocean. Um, And if you, if your prediction model happens to tap into language that gets caught up in one of those memes, then that's bad, right? You end up you end up tracking a meme over time. And it's happened many times when psychologists use these very simplistic methods where they just use lists of words and they match it against language patterns mm-hmm. that you can get trapped into some anomalous word use that you didn't anticipate. Um, yeah, but yeah, so Twitterology is always a danger and they you know, they're methodological safeguards to make sure that that what you're doing has what we call external validity, that it generalizes beyond the particular data set that you extracted it from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's, to say it more generally, there's also methods in machine learning and NLP that do this more formally, right? Go goes through domain adaptation processes where you build a language model on Twitter, you build it on Reddit, you build it on Facebook, and then you throw out basically the features that are platform specific and you frustrate the model in a way to increase its bias and reduce its variance, which ends up making more stable across domains. Mm -hmm.
0: And so you've recently applied this type of approach to, uh, doing language analysis of Twitter data to predict, uh, psychological trends that are occurring alongside COVID-19. Can you share a little bit about that work and kind of your goals there? Yeah. I mean, it's a work in progress. So the, um,
1: generally we've been developing methods that uses the last eight years of data to estimate subjective well-being of communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and here often we sort of go down to the county level. There's about 3000 counties in the US. It's a, it's a pretty decent level of spatial aggregation. Um, and we're now adjusting these methods and stabilizing the methods to track temporal trends in mental health, in loneliness, in different pieces of subjective well-being as a function of shelter in place, any kind of lockdown, as well as case case and mortality data. Um, and the background here is that the well-being shock, so the change in well-being that we're going to see as a function of COVID and the collapse of the economy and this shelter in place orders, is unprecedented. And people throw unprecedented around now in every sentence around
0: COVID. It's the beginning of every email. It's the beginning of
1: every email. That's right. The, from your from your meal delivery service, right? <laughs> in, in, in these unprecedented times. Here's what HelloFresh is doing for you. That's right. <laughs> uh, um, but it, it's worth considering how unprecedented it is, right? It's mm. it's something like a 10, 20, 30 standard deviation shock. Right. So it's it's something that is it's not part of the normal distribution of global experience or national experience and so Mm -hmm. it also means that our explanatory models for what that means so what secondary impacts that have have no training data we have no experience right sort of no mental training data the impact of unemployment just in an average in a standard situation where a person loses unemployment reduces subjective well-being so much that the difference in subjective well-being is is roughly equal to the median, the mean difference between the well-being of America and the well-being of Uzbekistan. Like just being hit personally in your personal life by unemployment, by sort of sustained unemployment, a sort of major loss of income disrupts your life in a way that is massive. Um, And as the kind of person who's been looking at well-being for 10 years and national and within nation statistics of well-being the kinds of changes of of well-being that we're seeing right now are off the chart they're off the chart There's, you have to rescale all plots that you've ever made because you're seeing changes that are extreme right so for, here's an example so gallup polls the u.s population across a number of Emotions and we can quibble. They're not, it's not ideal. They're, they're what they're is doing, but it's, it's sort of the best we have. Mm-hmm. So they asked things about stress, joy, sadness, happiness, um, and stress is something like 40%. And, you know, in 2008, it was 39%. And in 2018, it was 41%, like whatever, whatever the value is for the population is generally plus minus 1% year on year. Right? I mean, you know, economic crisis, it dips by 2008, 2010, economic crisis, it will drop, drop by 2 or 3%. It's now changed by 20%. Wow. So so 20 times the normal variability in the in the signal, we're already seeing it. We're, what, two months into this, three months into this, mm-hmm. right? Wow. And in 2000, 2008, 2010, it really took took many months for all of the curves, really, to bottom out. And... All the sort of cascading effects, people still have, you know, the large chunk of the population that lives paycheck to paycheck still has, can still hold, can hold themselves over for a week or two, but where people's reserves are depleted, people's financial reserves are depleted, their social reserves are depleted. So what's happening here is, will be studied in psychology for the next 10 years, will be studied in health economics for the next 10 years, and in many other disciplines. This is a defining scientific event of of in the lifetime of scientists. And it's of course a defining event in all of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And so, right, so given, given that that is the situation, our lab, our consortium, as well as all social scientists are now working hard to make the world relevant to being helpful in this space and adjusting their methods to try to add understanding, to add insight. Um, to help with resource allocation, to identify interventions. And so, yeah. And so, of course, we do this too in our work. We we scrape Twitter in a number of different ways across 30 keys. We're trying to build up cohorts in different communities across the U.S. that we can compare the psychological impact again rather than... So there's a very simple way of working with Twitter data and then there's a sort of more mature way of working with Twitter data. The simple way is that you just um, get random feeds of tweets, 1% is free, right? You can just pull that from Twitter. Um, The more mature ways is that you're trying to build up a cohort the same way you would in a panel survey. So you you build up a sample of Twitter users that you characterize. You might use their sample of tweets to estimate their gender and their age, which are sort of solved problems within some relatively small margin of error. And then you build up a demographically weighted sample from a community. And then you get their entire timelines. And so rather than getting a different chunk of random tweets for every temporal window, you follow the same people over time. So what you're really aggregating over is with in-person change over time. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the recipe for much higher statistical power and much less noise. Mm-hmm. Because you can you can even covary out differences between the people. And you can only say let me just re-baseline all the people equally and then see how they go up and down together. And you end up extracting a very different kind of signal. So we're building these cohorts, these Twitter user cohorts for different communities so that we can follow them over time. right? So Washington as the first state who really went through this. And then, of course, New York and the Bay Area as a a state where it's pretty well handled. And then um, with an eye on the next wave, which will be the rural parts of the U S that has not really followed guidelines yet and didn't have to, frankly, but it's now penetrating their communities as well. There, there'll be sort of a late awakening there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah.
0: And so, and then there's, there's, other there's
1: lots of ways in which we're using Twitter data. So I, right now I just talked about the psychological impact piece, but we're also working on adherence tracking on seeing. Well, let's how let's stick on the change.
0: psychological impact piece. Uh, you've got, you mentioned surveys like Gallup polls that, you know, can ask people directly, you know, how they're doing, how they're feeling Uh, in the, in the Mm -hmm. world of Twitter, are you applying techniques analogous to sentiment analysis to get a sense for how folks are doing? Or are you somehow relating a model that you've built on Twitter to data that you have from external polling or other, you know, kind of subjective measures? Yeah, that's exactly right. So Yeah.
1: So sentiment analysis, particularly the more sophisticated sentiment analysis implementations works pretty well. Um, We prefer, I mean, we generally throw this in as a baseline, but we prefer to do something that's a little more targeted to these different well-being components. I should say that psychologists also think of well-being as a multi-dimensional situation, not as a mood positive negative thing. So it generally spans an evaluative dimension, life satisfaction. It has a, positive sentiment end, right? So a positive emotion component has a negative sentiment end. Um, things like stress. And what's important there from the psychological view is these are not contrapositive opposites. So mm-hmm. having positive emotion doesn't mean you don't have negative emotion. They are at an angle at one another, they're correlated, but not opposite, right? So having children is a good example of a lifestyle intervention that gives you more positive emotion, but also more negative emotion, right? You have the intensity of both is ramped up. And then generally at minimum, we also like to think of a meaning purpose piece. So having a worthwhile life. And there's a number of different multidimensional wellbeing frameworks, but those four Life satisfaction, positive, negative emotion, and uh, a meaning purpose piece has been pretty robust for the last 30 years. So it's not a bad place to start. Um, yeah, and so our preferred training data are things like Gallup surveys that are this, and they ask it of communities. And we, we aggregated 1.7 million Gallup surveys over eight years. We aggregated Twitter across the same time span. And then we use county level Estimates of well-being as the training data to train the language models and that ends up Right, it's in the same domain if you're trying to measure the estimate if you're trying to measure the well-being of counties train a county level language model Mm -hmm. Um, the other way to do it is um, We have data sets where we have individual Survey respondents from which we have social media data. We have their survey answers We have their social media language and then we train a person level prediction model which in principle, given that we've built this cohort and I just, you know, I went through the sort of lengthy pipeline, now that we treat Twitter as a conjunction of people, in principle, we can apply these prediction models to these people, right? And then track people as a unit and then aggregate above them rather than um, being at a sort of bag of tweet level with and being in a single dimension like sentiment analysis. But sentiment analysis is often a sort of first pass baseline and it sort of captures the idea, but we want to be psychologically a little more nuanced to Mm -hmm. distinguish the different pieces.
0: So you mentioned you, you don't use a kind of bag of tweet type of model, but with the approach that you use, do you run into the same kinds of issues that you might, if you did where, you know, in sentiment analysis, you have words that are kind of misleading, you know, relative to what they're trying to indicate or, you know, whether it's because of slang or, you know, other factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the, what makes this a little bit tricky is that
1: language across the U S is also used differently in different subcultures. So Mm -hmm. that's one. So the South in the U S uses language differently. And the second piece is that there's also different kinds of ways of engaging with language. So rather than thinking of language as a purely sort of agnostic medium for information transfer, I think it makes more sense. And this will not be new to anyone, but to think of language as a distribution over speech acts so everything from reassurance seeking to cursing to information gathering to self expression right these are all they have different motivational structures they have different intentions and they have different intended audiences and so what we see is that different parts of the country the distribution of the speech acts is different because the kind the way people engage with twitter is different so mm-hmm. there's a there's a sort of strong line of evidence to suggest that in urban areas and in inner city urban areas, Twitter is used much more colloquially in the way you and I might use WhatsApp or texting. It's much more, you, you suddenly see lots of sort of personal information on Twitter that you'd never expect there as a sort of person who mostly engages with twitter for professional or informational purposes. So here we have this cohort of informational professional use. Here we have this cohort of private personal texting relational use. And so the distribution of language will of course be different between the two cohorts and as a result if you have a language model that is agnostic to this it'll capture one or not the other or it'll it'll run with with signal in the wrong way. And so the the county level machine learning models already know these differences at training time, right? Because they have the geographic variation in language use in their training data. And so as the model is being built, those features are determined to not be predictive in the sort of way that you'd expect in a sort of cross-validation framework. By the way, is this too technical or is this... No,
0: this is good. Okay. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, you know, some of what you're seeing so far? What kind of patterns have emerged as a result of your analysis, you know, understanding that it's all you know, very new? So there, in, the, in terms of psychological
1: impact, the, the first Twitter curves look like the Gallup curves. So we're seeing anxiety go up. We see loneliness go up. We see positive emotion not change that much. Um, Right. This is, again, to my point that these things are often, you can feel worse without feeling less positive emotion. Right. So Mm -hmm. those curves, we haven't seen change as much, but the truth is we don't really know. And in particular, I'm not, we're still going through the process of calibrating temporal Signal, um, the aggregation of temporal signal into temporal chunks a week, two weeks, what are the thresholds? How do you deal with sparsity problems? the fact that some people will tweet in these two weeks but not in these two weeks now you want to follow these people over time. Okay. So are you going to use some imputation method? Are you gonna re- renormalize? there's sort of lots of devils in the details. There's, it's also in a different mode now in terms of research. It used to be, which is common to all scientists, that you sort of do what makes what's methodologically most interesting, what's maybe fanciest, right? What has the highest marginal predictive validity in some in some evaluation framework. Um, and certainly I and I think many others have now changed gears and become much more conservative in the way they do this work. Like rather than totally optimize this thing that will impress my colleagues, let me do something that is extremely robust and dependable, mm-hmm. even at the cost of not being the most accurate model that there is in the world. Um, and because that- I don't want to pay, because I want these things to be used now, right? I want right. to, right. If the pitch now is, hey, we're going to do this early warning system for outbreaks of mental health crises, which could feed into what we call death of despair, overdoses, suicides, substance abuse domestic abuse, all these sort of situations. If, I really, if, if I'm really talking to policymakers on an eye-to-eye footing, you have to really say, I've done whatever I could to make sure that the numbers I'm showing you are dependable and robust. And so we're, we're, we're tackling a lot of these sort of stabilization issues. The one thing that is not needed for COVID is more hackathons. Mm. Like Every company that works with data has had a hackathon now. And the world is inundated with Twitter dashboards Mm -hmm. and Twitter Twitter sentiment analysis, proof of concepts. We don't need any more proof of concepts. We don't need sentiment analysis on random Twitter feeds. What we need is validated models that dovetail with different kinds of observations that are validated against things like Gallup data, things like um, these surveys that have been going around that now have millions of respondents. Um, We need to make sure that what we're doing here is dependable and is part of a larger multidisciplinary narrative of what's happening. So that's changed it a little bit. And it also means that things just take longer to do well, right? Just like you don't want to hackathon a vaccine. You also don't want to hackathon a sort of population-level mental health system.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, Does the fact that you're doing this analysis at the county level... Give you any interesting political insights? Um, little bit.
1: So we looked at language. Um, so we we shortlisted it down to language that is COVID-related by filtering to a, a set of COVID hashtags, and then we ran some topic modeling and sort of dimensionally reduced the language down onto these semantically coherent themes of language and then looked at the correlation of those themes of language with other county-level variables. So, And that includes political leaning of the counties. And so what we saw in March data, which is now a whole month outdated, we haven't run this on fresher data because we've been focusing on other things, but what we saw in March data is that you could certainly see that um, Trump voting counties had significantly more discourse that seemed like the whole thing was a Hoax, and that it was just like the flu. So these sort of um, misin- sources of misinformation that are were sort of prevalent early on on Fox News and those media bubbles, we could see them in the language on Twitter and in urban counties and particularly in, particular, in ec- educated counties. But more, most importantly, in counties with high population density, the, you very quickly saw them moving to the the what we call a quarantine life the sort of there's three stages in the sort of transition that, that we see in the language to the third stage which is wash your hands wear your masks meeting is canceled i work from home i have a walking desk now sort of the the adaptation processes the logistical and psychological adaptation processes as a result of this of this change lifestyle for completeness the first phase is a sort of anxiety phase. Oh, I think this is happening. We're we're long through this now, universally mm-hmm. across the US. Oh, I think this is happening. This could be bad. Just look at China. And then the second one is like, oh shit, it's here. Right. It's 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 arrived in my community. It's the it's around the first death in a community that people really you, you see this sort of spike in anxiety language where people are like, oh this is, you know, this is here. This is me. And then you have this adaptation transition. And so the the Democrats high Population density counties transitioned into that third phase before the other, before the urban, mm-hmm. sorry, before the rural, more Republican voting counties did. and But my strong suspicion based on survey data is um, that they are now also in that transition. The survey data that reported by the New York Times suggested that there's about a two-month lag between the urban and the rural counties, which... Doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about where where you were in your headspace at the beginning of March, it's probably different than where you are now, right? Yeah. So, Repo- Republican counties are now where big cities were two months ago. This mm. I think, roughly what my guess is in that space, and we see that in the language.
0: Yeah, that that uh, three phase um, model that you uh, articulated is that a general model? along the lines of the kind of the phases of grief that you have applied uh and saw in this data or is this something that you kind of empirically came up with based on looking at the data here it's, it's something we empirically came up with and that at least two other labs also came up with
1: okay so it has this nice it has this nice feature that by the time three people look at their data and they see these three traits three phases, you think you have something empirically. Yeah, so there's psychological theory to some extent that's relevant here, sort of terror management theory and the sort of uh, trauma integration stuff. It's not entirely clear which ones of them, which one of these theories is more applicable. They certainly all provide insights and things to watch out for. Um, um, gives you sort of a heads up what might be happening certainly at some people. For example, the, the trauma literature suggests that part of what's happening here as well is the disruption of our assumptive world. So mm-hmm. the notion of the assumptive world in, in psychology is the, all the things you thought you knew, all the things that you just sort of relied on implicitly, the, the basic axioms that run your life. Oh, you know, if I, if I need to go outside and, and, and pick up my mood, I go for a walk and get a coffee. Well... You're no longer going for a coffee. You can still go for a walk. So lots of these pieces have changed. Um, the social graph has changed, right? So social networks l- look like they're c- um, contracting. So right. So if you're if if you're an acquaintance with somebody, if you're if you're on within the family unit now, you may have more contact with people. But if you've been an acquaintance with somebody, or sort of a sort of if it's more of a loose social tie, there is a chance that these ties are simply weakened simply through the trade-off with the inner ties getting stronger. Yeah. So we have heads up there, but the, the three phases are empirical and they're community level phases. They're not individual level phases. There's also, right. It's a community level set of speech acts. Um, also communicating to one another, right? trying to elicit certain behaviors in one another. Like, Hey, can you, can we be anxious together? Right. And then, Hey, can we agree that there, that we have a social norm consensus around these things, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, you should wash your hands. Yes, let me retweet that, right? Let me give that strength. Because it reorganizes my assumptive world to know that we are organizing into a cohesive vision of what's going on. And part of this, part of the, the change in the assumptive world is also the reason why behavior change has been so ridiculously fast, right? So for, for decades, we've tried to change people smoking. And and you know, it's taken many decades and those curves inch up a percent at a time year on year. And it's 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 the biggest success in public health, right? Arguably that we've had, because all the impact on heart disease and all of was the leading cause of death. But it's taken decades to do this very, very gradual behavior change. And suddenly within two months. We go through this radical set of behavior changes with absolutely new social norms, right, where people feel like you're a a norm violator if you walk by them too closely in the park, right? That social norm didn't exist three and a half months ago. Masks are becoming a social norm to the fact that, right, again, you're perceived as violating the social norm. People find you morally blameworthy for not engaging in these things. So a very, very strong social norm, not a weak social norm, strong social norms. All these social norms have come out of nowhere. The fact that we all suddenly, right, that Zoom is our new reality and that mm-hmm. there's a new sort of implicit social norm that we're now reaching out to long lost friends to check in on them and so forth. These things are all came out of nowhere. Like we don't see this, you don't see this short of war national disasters, you don't see this in people's psychological experience. And that's because the old way, right, the old assumptive world broke. So now we're in this period of behavior, super plasticity, where people are very quickly orienting themselves, picking up social cues, picking up norms, and then congealing them into pattern and expectations. And that's its fascinating for psychologists, um, but it also means we, you know, we're flying, we're flying Uh, (laughs) We're flying by sight here, right? I mean, we we don't know where we're going.
0: We've mentioned a couple of ways that this has changed over time, the political perspective and kind of the stages. Uh, Are there other patterns that you are seeing that are taking shape kind of week to week uh, in this data? Not particularly. I mean, there's these global
1: trends in the psychological variables, well-being, loneliness, mental illness. Um, there are different, as behaviors transition, language about behaviors and social norms is transitioning. There's, right, I mean, there's the whole subfields now being spawned that track the spread of misinformation week on week. Mm-hmm. What kinds of misinformation are spiking, which ones are collapsing, right? So certainly the narrative that it's just like the flu is probably collapsing. I don't know whether it's it comes from a lab in Wuhan thing is, but you know, it's over IT. time. Oh, 5G, uh, uh, hydrochloric hydroxychloroquine, whatever it is. So th- these memes have sort of right. They they live on shorter time scales as they're sort of being picked up and debunked. And they they, they still continue to live in and in, in subpopulations. They will believe it's 5G until the end of the world. But um, you know, new things are being born. Old things die. Um, these are the waves on the sort of Twitter ecosystem, right? They're, they're there for sure. Yeah, adherence, misinformation. There's also work on seeing if we can track symptoms with Twitter, right? If we can. There's sort of been a Google flu trends idea many years ago that's been out reproduced in Twitter a few times with more and more sophistication, right? So in principle, there is a world in which we say, well, we have a testing problem, right? By the way, um, all... SIR models, all models that predict the infection rates over time have been dramatically off. Dramatically off, with a few exemptions. The IHME model is pretty decent. But most of them have been dramatically off. The best thing I think we can do, just again from a high bias, low low variance rule of thumb, what what do we know that we know perspective is take the number of death and multiply it by 200, right? Because you can assume a base mortality of around 0.37 or 0.4, 0.5, 0.6. The the infected mortality doesn't seem to be higher than that. And we know this from the first epidemiological studies here in the US, and we know it from epidemiological studies in Germany. Assuming that everybody who needs critical care capacity gets critical care capacity, the mortality of this virus seems to be around 0.5%. So to rescale 0.5% to 100% you multiply by 200 so if you do that for the for the number of dead in the US you get whatever it is 12 million infected or something like that so that's a, that's a much more dependable number than the case, number of officially tested. So, okay, so that out of the way, so we have a testing problem in calculating the space rates. All the models have that problem because without testing, you don't know what the input is in your SIR model. And it's probably part of the reason why it's so terrifically, why they've been so terrifically off. Um, but there, there is a world in which you can use Twitter to track symptoms, right? We've seen this with fever, thermometers, the elevation in temperature measurements in these smart thermometers, At some point we're thought to sort of precede the spikes in confirmed cases. I don't know if that panned out, but this global sort of quantified self idea also applies to Twitter that if people talk more about coughs, um, if people talk more about dry coughs and things like loss of taste, these features in aggregate might be predictive of county level rates. And that is a nut that I don't think anybody's cracked yet. And the problem is in part that um, so far we've overlapped with the flu season and the COVID symptoms just are not specific to COVID. To have a cough, to have elevated temperature to some extent, but most of the COVID symptoms are not specific to COVID. So, you have a classification problem. You have very low information. You know, we, we talk of diagnosticity in these features. They, they do not differ. The distributions in these features do not differ between different conditions. And so the specificity with which you can make certain predictions is fairly low. Now that the flu season is coming to an end, the normal flu season, we might be able to pick, up, pick that up more. That's a very promising line of work that I'm sure other labs are involved in, but that's just on the horizon.
0: Would you anticipate problems with um, with people's willingness to self-disclose tweet about the illness if it's uh, stigmatized? There's been some talk of that.
1: Um, yeah. So it's it's again like we talked about earlier with a sort of social desirability biases and certainly being. <laughs> Being contagious is not an attractive feature in a person. The counts, we, so we, we scanned Twitter for people who said I've been diagnosed with COVID and the number of people who disclose it is fairly low. It's in the tens of thousands, probably across all Twitter. Um, it's, it's relatively rare. And there you also have a huge impact from a psychological perspective of personality traits. Only a certain kind of person shares publicly that they're diagnosed with a certain illness. We've seen this in previous years because there were machine learning competitions where data was collected through Twitter and the criterion for inclusion into these data sets where the people said that they'd been diagnosed with depression or they've been diagnosed with PTSD. And so a Twitter data set was built up with sort of self annotated users and their time series and their retroactive time series against control users and then different labs try to predict which one is which. And um, in that work, we saw very early on that if you just predict the people's personality, you can predict the question as to whether they would share that. They shared their diagnosis about as well than a model that was actually trained on the sharing of the diagnosis, Mm. which tells us that it's a particular, it has to do with self monitoring with low conscientiousness, with disagreeableness. So your willingness to violate social norms, your lack of attention to how other people could perceive you and just your your lack of just regulation, the general behavior regulation predicts pretty well that you share these things. So when you use the self annotated data, you have to realize that you're sort of, you're, you're now within a, within a cell of the whole distribution of kind of people who would share it. And you have to tune your methods appropriately so that you, the only generalized statements that are appropriate to those constraints, right? So that is to say, for example, if there's national differences in the kinds of Twitter users, those personality differences might be different across those different cohorts, which means that the rate at which people disclose diagnoses are different. And so, what you and then you detect different rates of diagnosis, and you say, "Ha, we, you know, we developed the Johns Hopkins augmentation Twitter tracker for confirmed cases. Whatever. He's our dashboard. We just had a hackathon, right? <laughs> um, but no, what you're really doing is you picked up on a on a cohort difference on Twitter because you didn't think about it, right? So it's it's difficult, it's really difficult. And not every method is perfect for every problem, right? So um, epidemiological studies are the way to do this, where you randomly sample the population, regardless of as to whether they show up in an emergency room or in a supermarket or where you set up your polling place, you do it like the CDC would run you know, a measles study. You say, here is a random sample of my population. What's the population prevalence? Let's test them with RNA. Let's test them with antibodies. Do they have it currently? Have they had it? Right? And then you sort of calibrate this all nicely. That's the way to do these studies. The the use of Twitter in these things is sort of nice, and it's an intellectual exercise. But in this time where we just need to get things done, I think that's not the way to do it.
0: What do you expect to see in terms of the long-term psychological impacts for people and um, you know is that at all informed by the data that you're seeing uh, through this analysis yeah I think I think what we what we're going to see is a sort of equilibrium transition
1: in the behavior space what do I mean by this so people's behaviors are socially constructed and they're socially maintained and they often there's a path dependence on how people end up in certain Equilibria, right? So the fact that our emails have little envelope symbols, and we talk about carbon copies of our in our emails, are skew morphisms, as they're called, right? They're Mm -hmm. uh, leftovers from a time when email was really a digital version of snail mail, which it no longer is, and so. Email still has all these skeuomorphisms that are no longer helpful. This is why we all prefer Slack to email because Slack doesn't have the, I hope this finds you well, I hope your family as well. I, you, know, it, it, you, you can skip all of that sort of formality that was imported from a different domain. And so what's happening with this shaking loose of the assumptive world and this behavior and equilibrium transition with COVID is that we're going gonna to fall into new equilibria that we couldn't have transitioned into unless everybody would have transitioned at the same time. And what could possibly make everybody transition at the same time, right? If 10% of your organization are still on email and are not on Slack, you're on email because you have to be, right? And so what we see now is we have an external forcing function, a natural experiment natural disaster forcing function that causes an equilibrium transition in the behavior space in these different domains. And so I think some of these things will really stick because some of these equilibria are clearly, now that we've all transitioned, we clearly see they're more adaptive. There are many cases now where we, certainly I see in my life, hey, this is a better way of doing this. This shouldn't have been, this should have been on Zoom. This should not have been Five academics flying across the country for two days. We gave, here's another example. We gave um, the the talk at HAI, the Center Institute for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence that you mentioned. So uh, normally these things happen in person, and there's order 100 people there. And then there's order 50 people who live stream this. Okay, right? And everybody who live streams, couldn't make it, would otherwise have been in the room, is a spouse of a person who is in the room or has otherwise a strong tie through this whole situation. Now the whole thing is in the in the online space. Suddenly we have three to four thousand viewers of the same event. And so there's much more. I mean, this is a the connection we have right now is a result of that equilibrium transition, because we transitioned into the digital space. So why? but you could you you know you could stream in before why didn't 4000 people stream in before well probably because you feel like a second class citizen if you go into an in person first event And you get the sort of leftover live stream of it. You're like, oh, this is clearly not designed for me. This is clearly designed for the people who are there. And I get to be there because I really, really want to or have to. With that constraint lifted, with that equilibrium transition executed, we're now finding ourselves in a situation where we look at 4,000 users and say, do we really, viewers, do we ever really want to go back to 100 viewers? And I think across domains, there's, you know, Zoom happy hours might stick around, even when people can meet meet in person because it's a really nice way to nullify the effect of distance in sort of long old relationships that are really, really valuable, right? So my imagination is limited, but I think structurally the way every everything else has been moving, I think we'll end up with new ways of doing things that'll stick around because they're better and because we've undergone the cost of doing this transition.
0: Do you anticipate as well, or are people talking about... Uh, kind of a psychological trauma aspect of it that uh, lingers? Yeah, it can. So I would say that what this is
1: impacting is the entire distribution of risk. So people who are really well are slightly less well. People who were medium are now sort of meh minus. And people who are not doing well are now in a territory where their psychological distress may be Quote unquote, clinically significant, which means that they're not no longer able to function in a way that maintains their livelihood, maintains their social ties. They might just go MIA and sort of hide in their bed, or they undergo an episode of psychopathology, a major depressive episode, an anxiety episode. They might develop, if there's already an, a tendency there towards anxiety, this might now sort of manifest into generalized anxiety disorder, right? We, we, these, these things are becoming more severe. So this event, so A, the right the medical impact, the assumptive world, people die, right? After the Spanish flu, they said, you may not have died, but everybody knew somebody who died. By the time all of us know somebody who have died, we have a very immediate psychological impact of that, right? It's just our social graph is disrupted. People we love have died. That's a major stressor. And then, of course, all our, all our general mechanisms of regulating our mood, go get a coffee, hang out with my friends, all these things we do to just, you know, make ourselves feel better are taken off the tables. So our repertoire for regulating our experience has also diminished massively. And so, yes, There will be a large number of people, which again will be unprecedented. The question is, is it 10 standard deviations out? Is it five standard deviations out? Is it 20 standard deviations out? Who will be pushed into the psychopathology ballpark and into the trauma ballpark? And we'll have to integrate this. And not everyone is dealing with this in the same way. There is quite a bit of individual difference in how people process and adapt to these kinds of changes. And there will be, I mean, we have... Order twenty thousand suicides a year. Strongest predictor of committing suicide is having access to a gun. Not surprisingly. Suicides will go up. Traffic de- we have thirty thousand traffic deaths a year, order of magnitude. Traffic deaths have been going down. Suicides have been going up. So there's a certainly a transition across mortality categories. How much suicides will are will spike is it's a very, very curious question that it's extremely hard to predict because suicides are incredibly hard to predict. They're very, they're sort of renowned for their impossibility to be predicted at a population scale. We
0: we will all be dealing
1: with this for years in one way or another. I'm sure.
0: Is your work primarily limited to English analysis on Twitter, or do the techniques you're applying apply across uh, different languages? In principle,
1: they're applicable across languages. We've done this in Spanish. Um, we started doing this in Chinese. Right now, we're focusing on English, but we're um, collaborating with people, say, in the Mexican government who are trying to reproduce similar things in, in Mexico and Spanish. But the the machine learning pipelines work across languages, and they also work across characters That so into the kanjis in Japanese and Chinese and so forth. They, they also work. Topic modeling works in Chinese. Um, the, the question is just, you always want to have training data in your... In your target language. So we played around with this a few years ago. Can you build a model and then go through a machine translation pipeline and then apply it in a different language? And the answer is yes, but you lose about 50% of the accuracy. So what you really want to be doing is you want to collect training data in a language. So to some extent, the, the question is: can this be scaled to a different language? Is, is there somebody who cares enough to invest into collecting their training data or has their training data? Um, Certainly something like sentiment translates pretty nicely because sentiment is sort of nicely solved in a number of different languages. So if you just need a baseline across uh, languages, sentiment is really not a bad place to start, particularly if it's a sort of apples to apples sentiment. Um, but a sentiment model will not rescue you from the constraints of using something like Twitter without any heavy processing, building up a cohort, figuring out where people live, building up time series, normalizing effects between people. Um, you still have to do that heavy lifting in, in in other language spaces.
0: And is there a transfer learning component that makes it less of a burden for the N plus one language, or are you starting from scratch and replicating the same process? It's a good question.
1: Um, I, I, I'm not sure. It's not my, my specialty to try to do this with transfer learning. We've used transfer learning in a, in, in a few applications and it, had, it was marginally helpful, um, okay. but I'm not sure. I just don't know how well that would help across
0: languages. Okay, great. Well, Johannes, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed chatting about what you're up to and learning more about your research. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Great. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course,